Hello, people of the way. Uh, if you have your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 9. And we kick off Romans chapter 9. It's so beautiful because Paul is uh, teaching a very, very young church. Always understand that the book of Romans, a, a lot of these books to the churches, these letters to the churches, they're for young Christians. Uh, some are more seasoned. Uh, it tends to be that the more seasoned happen to be elders and pastors. And we're going to see that as uh, when we get into uh, the pastoral letters uh, to Timothy, to Titus. But then we're going to reflect back on the book of Acts too and see and, and certain passages and other letter, letters. And we're going to see like little mentions of Titus and Timothy to see that, you know, how the Lord grew them how the Lord uh, expanded their ministry and matured them in Christ for their role as uh, pastor, pastor, pastoral leadership and then as elders. Uh, but there's no holds barred with Paul, with Paul. He's, I mean, picture like we're in university. Say we're all, all university students and we're in class where the professor's about to speak. He comes in, says, hey, we got some new students. And like, you know, five people walk in, except they're like eight-year-olds. You know, we're like college-age students, you know, sitting there all collegiate-like. And, you know, these little 8-year-olds come in, 10-year-olds come in. And they sit in class and they follow along and maybe they even do better. You know, they do tests, they do exams, and maybe they even score higher than us. You know, and that's what I love about Paul. He's no holds barred when he's giving truth to the church. Young, old, physically speaking, in our carnal bodies, our physical bodies, in Christ, that has no bearing. I mean, to a certain degree. I mean, you have like little kids and stuff, but you can have a 20-year-old, a 15-year-old that is more mature in Christ than an 80-year-old. You see? So understand these things. It kind of reminds me of our study on Wednesday. Remember on Wednesday, like you look at the camp of Israel, all the tribes of Israel, age 20 and above, but then you look at the camp of the priesthood of the Levites, and they're like little babies, one month old included. So, you know, there's these uh, um, correlations that we have Old Testament and New Testament, and it's very beautiful. But I have to say, chapter 9, it's very loaded, and you're going to see it pan out. Here in chapter 9, verse 1, this is Paul saying, he says, I tell the truth. In Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, that's a pretty layered statement right there, a pretty layered verse. Because Paul is saying, I'm telling the truth in Christ. So I'm telling you the truth. You know, that's layer number one. This is Paul speaking. This isn't, you know, Joe Schmo. This is Paul. We've seen his witness. We've seen his uh, 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 the work of his hands, the steps of his feet in the book of Acts. He's saying, I tell the truth. That's layer number one. In Christ, layer number two. I'm not lying. Layer number three. My conscience also bearing me witness. Layer number four. In the Holy Spirit. Layer number five. Whoa. That's why I say that's pretty loaded. What is he saying here? What is it that he's is telling the truth about? And this is it in verse 2. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Whoa. Intense sorrow is how this translates. And continual grief means it is non-stop. Non-stop and permanence to his grief that he has in his heart, in the depths of his heart. You read this like, oh my goodness, Paul, why? 
He says this in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. What a heart. What a heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed. Anathema is uh, to be banned. Anathema, separated from Christ. Why, Paul? For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. You know what that is? Israel. The Jewish people. Look at his heart that he has. How he loves his countrymen, Israel, so much that he says, Lord, if they could take, take them instead of me, Lord. Take them instead of me. What a heart this guy has. Look what he says here in verse 4. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain, pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. So that's to whom, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is, who is over all the eternity, eternally blessed of eternity, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Wow, you know, we're just starting in chapter 9, and look already how, how loaded this is. You see a picture of the heart of Paul. And you know what I love about the heart of Paul? You see his alignment with the heart of God. Paul is long-suffering. He says, I tell you the truth, I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. I have intense sorrow, great sorrow, and nonstop and permanent grief, continual grief in my heart. Long-suffering for Israel. Have you ever long-suffered for another person? Maybe Israel, a people. Maybe another people. Maybe your neighbors, family, friends. Wow, that's the heart of the Lord. Just like Paul, you read this, it's like, wow, Paul, I had no idea you were long-suffering. And you see alignment with the heart of God. Now, I have to say something. Do you remember how we started our study in Leviticus? And in our introduction to Leviticus, we were looking at new covenant truths. And I said the reason why we're looking at these new covenant truths is because I don't want Satan to whisper in your ear to get you to go back to the law. Do you remember? If you don't, if you're like a new listener, go back in our Leviticus 1 studies. Listen to the, you know, the first couple chapters. You know, there's always this little precursory study in the New Testament. Understanding what the law is. Understanding that we are a people of the new covenant. But then at the same time, we're going to do something like that here in chapter 9. Because chapter 9 is loaded with doctrinal issues. I mean, all, all, all the entirety of the Bible is loaded with doctrinal things, truths. But chapter 9 is one that's like, whoa, this is jam-packed. Now, I have to say, chapter 9 is better understood when you have the full counsel of the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. It is better understood when you have the full counsel of the Word of God. There are dangerous 
theories and theologies that are formed, especially when it comes to the topic of replacement theology. There's replacement theology, covenant theology, dual covenant theology, classic dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, new covenant theology, covenant premillennialism, supersessionism, and, you know, all these different kinds of theories, they are derived or emanate in a large degree from Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And a lot of people teach dangerous things, especially when it comes into replacement theology or supersessionism that God has done with Israel. Well, when you have the full counsel of the Word of God, you understand that God is not done with Israel. A lot of famous teachers, so-called teachers, a lot of famous pastors, so-called pastors, they teach replacement theology. They teach it. And people accept it because they don't have an understanding of the Old Testament promises, prophecies and promises that the Lord made through these beautiful, beautiful prophets that we have in the Old Testament. That's why it's very important for us to study the Old Testament and the New Testament together. The old interpreting the new, the new interpreting the old. And we're going to look at a lot of Old Testament passages today. Okay, I like to, you know, the way I like to explain, you know, whenever I talk to somebody who's into replacement theology, it's the way I explain it is there is one covenant with two families that are becoming one. One covenant with two families that are becoming one. Now you say, wait a second, I thought there was the old covenant and the new covenant. Yes, there is the old covenant and the new covenant, but remember, the law isn't over. The law is still in effect. The, the law is over when you die to the law and you're married to Christ, what we studied in Romans 7. And once you're dead to the law and you're alive in Christ, remember, you're married to Christ. The law isn't for you. The law is not made for a righteous person. What is, is taught to us in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The law is not made for a righteous person, but it still can be used lawfully. Plus, remember, you know, that Jesus Christ, he's the one who says, I did not come to do away with the law. So that alone says, wait a second, if the law is not done away with, then it's still in effect. He says, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. And that's why abiding in Christ and him in you, you're not under the law, but even still, when you're in Christ and Christ in you, the law can be used lawfully. For me, how the law is used lawfully is it freaks me out. <laughs> it scares me. It terrifies me. And praise be to the Lord. That's how the law is used lawfully for me. And I pray that it's used the same way in your life. And I also like to explain, you know, one covenant, two families becoming one rather than two covenants Rather than, you know, three covenants, four covenants, you have dual covenant theology, covenant premillennialism, supersessionism, all these, you know, so-called smart people. They come up with all these different ideas, but I like to think of it as one covenant, two families becoming one. And to my sisters in Christ, 
I think sisters in Christ have a better understanding of this. So say you're a sister, or say you're a girl, or your girl, but say, okay, say you're female, okay? And or just take a, a, a female. So a female, she meets a guy. They fall in love. The guy says, will you marry me? She says, yes. They get married. And then they get married. And then all of a sudden, the guy says, oh, let me introduce you to the entirety of my family. You know, my my brothers, my brother who was overseas, my brother who was across the country, my uncles. Let me introduce you to my family. So you have this female who is not part of the family, but through marriage, now she is a part of the family. You know, just like, you know, uh, uh, Zafnath Panea. Remember, also known as Joseph. Look at his brothers of the camp of Israel. But then at the same time, don't forget Asenath, his Gentile wife. So he had a Gentile wife. The wife is now grafted into the family through Joseph, and now she gets to meet the brothers. You see? So it's kind of the exact same concept when it comes to the church married to Jesus Christ, but then we are grafted in to the family of Israel. It's not all this, you know, uh, covenant theology, dual covenant theology, progressive dispensationalism, uh, covenant premillennialism. A lot of smart people, so-called smart people, they apply intellect to spiritual things. Now, if you happen to be Jewish and you're listening and you're like at odds with like, wait a second, I don't, I don't, I don't get this. You know, how could the promises of God all of a sudden go outside of Israel, outside of, you know, uh, uh, the Jewish people? Well, don't forget that Jacob blessed his grandsons before his only son, before his, his own sons. Don't forget. It was not Manasseh and Ephraim. It was Ephraim and Manasseh in that order. Don't forget. All these things that we read in the Old Testament, they're a shadow of the things to come. Jacob blessed his Gentile grandsons before he blessed his own sons. So you have this, even in terms of this patriarchal blessing to the Gentiles and then to the, the Jacob's own sons. A shadow of the things to come. Now, a lot of times people teach this replacement theology based on chapter 9, but something I have to say about chapter 9 is, remember, there's no page breaks in, in the original manuscripts. It's just one long text, the letter to the church in Rome. One long text, no paragraphs, you know. It's just one long text. We, through what we have today of holy scripture what we see here we have these breakups of you know the letter and you know certain chapters certain verses it's been numbered and it's it's nice it's easy for cataloging mentally and spiritually and it, it, it's it's beautiful but in some regard we miss out on we don't miss out but sometimes people can get away with teaching certain things that ought not to be taught such as replacement theology Whenever somebody points to Romans chapter 7, 
Romans chapter 8 or Romans chapter 9 or Romans chapter 10 or Romans chapter 11. These five chapters, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, are better read together. Okay, always remember that. They're better read together. They're better read together, and they're also better read with the full counsel of the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. So when I say they're better read together, is because this theme that is it initially starts in chapter 7, it goes on through 7, 8, 9, 10, and it culminates in chapter 11. And I have to say, people develop certain theories that are more Calvinistic and Reformed based on chapter 9 alone. Chapter 9 alone. In some cases, not all cases, but in a lot of cases, uh, certain theories and doctrines are established just based on chapter 9 alone. Now, before we continue, let's go to chapter 11. Chapter 11. Now, I know it's, you know, traditionally not a good thing to, you know, you know, you open up a book and you go right to the end and you read the end. That's not traditionally good when you're reading certain things. But for what we're studying, especially what we're hitting on in chapter 9, we have to look at Romans 11. We have to look at Romans 11. So, turn to Romans 11. Whenever somebody mentions to you Romans 9, Romans 9, and a lot of people will do it. Romans 9 says this, Romans 9 says this, Romans 9 says this. All you got to do, it is also written. And then go to Romans 11. Romans 11. And this is what Paul writes. And I want you to bind this on your heart. Bind it in your mind. Romans 11 verse 20. He says, well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty. But fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Everything hinges on belief. Belief. You see? In verse 18, Paul says, Remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And this is a heavy, heavy verse against replacement theology and supersessionism. This is a very, very heavy verse that the Christian, the people of the new covenant, we do not support the root. The root supports you. The root supports us, Christians. We are the branches. He says in verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Yes, beautifully said. But verse 20, but they were broken off. Why? Because of unbelief. That's why they were broken off. Broken off. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Does that mean we say like, oh, look, look how awesome we are. We're of the elect. We're of the elect. Look how cool we are. No way. 
not to get on a Christian high horse. Paul says, do not be haughty, but fear. And then he says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. That's why you have passages from Peter and Paul who say, hey, make your call and election sure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He may not spare you either, Paul says in verse 21. And so, therefore, we have to put these things into mind in considering the goodness in verse 22 and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness. If there's that word of conditionality, if you continue in his goodness. If you, this word for continue is to remain and abide in his goodness. Or else what? Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Whoa. And they also... If they do not continue in unbelief. So verse 20 starts out because of unbelief, they were broken off. So now you have a people, they don't believe, they're broken off. But then he says, if they do, if they do not continue in unbelief, so all of a sudden they believe again. They'll be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. You see, everything hinges on belief and obedience. Just as brother James says. The two are inseparable. Belief and obedience. Bind this on your heart. Because these verses that we looked at, they're going to protect you. They'll protect you. They'll help you to understand these concepts that we're going to learn in chapter 9. So let's go back to chapter 9 now. So remember everything we just, you know, anytime somebody references, a lot of times the brainiacs, the so-called brainiacs, they'll reference chapter 9. I can't tell you how many pastors and elders, very, very highly educated people, degrees in theology, doctorates in theology, professors at Bible colleges, universities, seminaries, they always reference Romans 9, Romans 9, Romans 9. But then we have this conversation. It is also written. And they have no idea. These so-called brainiacs. Because they rest their laurels on chapter 9 when there's more to the story. Remember Jesus Christ? When Satan says to him, hey, go, go to the apex. Let's go to the apex of, this, of, of the temple and jump down. And it is written that the angels will bring you down safely. What does Jesus Christ say? Satan used scripture. What does Jesus Christ say? It is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You see, it is also written. There's more to the story. A lot of times when you're... In these conversations with the so-called learned people, they always lean on Romans 9. And I'm not to say that you can't lean on Romans 9, but the entirety of the theme culminates in chapter 11, the passages that we were just read. And more, but we'll wait till we get to chapter 11. Because how it all unfolds, it's so incredibly beautiful. What the Lord has done and what He's doing, even to this very day. It's so incredibly beautiful. So now, let's look at chapter 6. Chapter 6. Or not, man. Chapter 9, verse 6 of Romans. So Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect or that it, has, uh, that it fails or has become inefficient. That's what Paul is saying. 
It's not that the word is has no power. It's not that the word is no, has no effect. It's not that the word is inefficient. It's not that the word fails. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Whoa, that's a heavy verse. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Remember, chapter 2, Paul teaches about how Jews are not really Jews. And Israel here is not really Israel. Whoa, does that mean it's anti-Semitic? No way. No way. Remember, the branch is not greater than the root. What we read in verse uh, chapter 11. The branch is not greater than the root, but the promises of God will be fulfilled. The promises of God, what's written in the Old Testament, they will be fulfilled. Every jot, every tittle will come to pass. Some of them has, have already come to pass, but there's much more. And so look what happens here in verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. <laughs> you know, this is why, you know, I love you. If you happen to be of Reformed background, Reformed theory background, or mainline Presbyterianism, or even uh, certain uh, uh, Baptist denominations, even Roman Catholic. Based on this passage in verse 7, verse seven, you know what we're, we're seeing here? That the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. The catechism of Presbyterianism, wrong. Hildeberg catechism, wrong. Wrong. Biblically, biblically incorrect. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. You see? So why is it that in these catechisms, they specifically mention the seed of Abraham? In the catechism. Now, me personally, I don't like catechism. I, I, that's just me. I, I don't like it. I, I, I think it does a lot to destroy the faith. Uh, you'll hear like famous so-called pastors, uh, famous uh, uh, coalitions, well-known coalitions, who develop these children's books. They develop uh, children reading material, children teaching material, certain coalitions written by very famous people, well-known, very lauded people. And you'll hear them speak about the importance of catechism for kids. And me personally, I think it does a lot more to destroy faith. That's just me. I don't like it. I don't like catechism. It's you don't see it in the Bible. It's it's derived by man. Turn with me to Acts chapter two, really quick. I'll explain myself because I know I'm. I might be like you know like you might be saying what in the world is the guy talking about? In Acts chapter two, verse thirty-seven. Remember, uh, the, what happens is Peter was, the, the disciples, they're apostles now, and they start speaking in tongues. And they gave this great gospel message in verse 37 of Acts 2. Now when they were cut, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart and they ask the question, what shall we do? And you know what Peter didn't say? He didn't say, study the catechism. Memorize these things. Recite these things because I want to know for sure you know what it is you're talking about. 
And biblically speaking, the uh, uh, Presbyterian Catechism, uh, 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 the Hildeberg, uh, Hildeberg uh, Catechism, Roman Catholic Church, their catechism, it's unbiblical. Based on uh, what we just looked at in Romans 9. Romans 9 verse 7. Biblically wrong. Because it's not Abraham's seed. It's heirs of Abraham. But biblically speaking, there is a specific line to follow. So Peter doesn't say, hey, memorize the catechisms. Memorize it. Put these scripture verses to memory. Learn these things and then recite them to the church. Recite them publicly to the church. Recite them publicly to the pastors, to the elders, so that we could know that you understand what it is that you're doing. Do you think the early church understood what they were doing? They believed in Jesus Christ. But you know what's so beautiful about walking with Jesus Christ? It's an adventure. It's just straight up adventure. When you're married to Him, you're not married to the law anymore. You're dead to the law and you're alive in Christ. It's a straight up adventure. And what does Peter say? They, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people that lean towards catechism, especially for catechism for children, their kids, these are the same people who say that the Holy Spirit doesn't work like we see in the book of Acts anymore. Me personally, I think they attempt to do the work of the Holy Spirit by telling their kids, hey, memorize this, memorize this, memorize this. I mean, what if a kid comes to you? A little 10-year-old kid, maybe 11, 12, 13, and they want to know more about faith. They're like, wow, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. Then you tell them, okay, you got to memorize this, memorize this, memorize this, memorize this, memorize this. It like kills the seed. This, this is how religion enters a church. And I know I'm going against the grain with a lot of, a lot of very well-known institutions by saying what I'm saying. The Council of Dort in 1611, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it. the establishment of the catechism, the establishment, the, the Calvinistic leaning. I don't agree with it. You say like, wait, wait a second. You're, you're going like off the rails here. You're going against what is taught by major, major organizations, major, major faith-based organizations. I stand on the Bible. That's what I teach. That's what I proclaim, the Bible. Who is it that's wrong? And I don't say that pridefully. Who is it that's wrong? You know, these, you know, I say certain things against Calvinism, reform theory. I don't just pull it out of my hat. And it's not just, you know, Calvinist reform theory. It's the secret friendly movement. It's the emergent church. There's a lot of things, you know, the kingdom now theology. Name it and claim it. it's multifaceted because what is it that the Bible teaches? You see, let's go back to Romans 9. Let's go back to Romans 9, verse 7. 
You know, in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. When I mention these catechisms, they specifically say in these catechisms, the seed of Abraham. No, biblically speaking, heirs of Abraham, but the seed of Abraham? Look at verse 7. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Remember, Abraham had several kids. So if, if through the catechism we're saying that, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Not Ishmael, not Zimron, not Jokshan, not Medan, not uh, 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 Ishbak, not uh, Ashua. The seed is through Isaac. And this is a tool that is being used for an ecumenical movement today, this very day and age. This is a tool based on the catechisms. Not based on the Bible. Based on the catechisms. And I know I'm going against the grain. I don't want to hurt anybody by saying this. A lot of people have spent decades, their entire Christian faith has been based on certain catechisms. But you know what? What does the Bible say? The Bible is our final authority. Not the catechisms. Not the Vatican Council, Vatican I, Vatican II. And I know there's probably people listening that's like, okay, I'm turning this off right now because this guy's off in crazy town. Am I? Am I really? Read the catechisms. Look at what it says about the seed of Abraham. Biblically speaking, heirs of Abraham is okay. That aligns with the Bible. But the seed of Abraham? Which seed? Ishmael? Which seed? Jokshan? Shua? No. This holy seed that was established, and it goes all the way through the generation, across generation, across generation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Israel. Verse 8. That is... Those who are of children of the flesh. Remember chapter 8. Remember our study in chapter 8, how we studied about not walking according to the flesh? Verse 8 says, you know, those who are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And these are people who walk according to the Spirit. That's why, you know, if you remember our study a couple weeks ago, you know, walking according to the flesh. You take one step to the left, two steps. That once you realize you're in the wrong, you need to repent and the Lord will bring you back to where you need to be. But you keep making repetitive steps, you know, going to the left, going, walking according to the flesh, according to the flesh, according to the flesh, according to the flesh. Never walking according to the Spirit. Yes, you believe. But don't forget that even, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. He said they tremble. And so, you know, a person is walking and, you know, it's walking according to the flesh. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But I'm walking, you know, according to the flesh. All this, this, I'm at the fork in the road. Boom, I take a left. I walk according to the flesh. 
And you keep doing that over and over and over. Each time you do that and you walk according to the flesh, you make these decisions based on the flesh, your heart is getting harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And who fell by transgression? Judas. Acts chapter 1. Remember, we looked at uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 3. What is it that said in, in uh, Hebrews 3, verse 12? Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's how a heart can get harder and harder and harder and harder. Christians, people who believe. But don't forget that even the demons believe. And don't forget, in Luke 8, it's possible to believe for a short period of time. That's why we looked at uh, Romans 11. Everything hinges on belief, and the Lord stretches it even further by indicating obedience. The exact same way Brother James writes about faith and works are inseparable. Faith and works working together are inseparable. You say, wait a second, Brother James is writing about faith and works. You're, you're talking about belief and obedience. Well, don't forget, when Brother James explains faith and works, he reflects to the Old Testament and refers to Abraham. And you, when you read the passage in Genesis, you know what you see? You see belief and obedience. All the works that Abraham is doing, it's in obedience to the voice of the Lord. And so all of a sudden, we go back to Romans 9. And it goes further in verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also has had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children... Notice the plurality here, the pl plurality in referencing Esau and Jacob, Esau the firstborn and Jacob the secondborn, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, because they haven't even been born yet, Esau or Jacob, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. Now, don't forget that Esau sold his birthright. Esau was the firstborn. He came out of the womb first. Remember, he was the hairy baby. And then Jacob was, you know, Jacob came. And then, you know, Esau sold his birthright. What does that show us? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this holy seed. The children not yet being born, nor having done good or evil, that the purpose or the showbread of God according to election might stand, translates as might endure and stay, not of works. Remember, debt, works is a debt. That's from our study in chapter 1. Works is a debt. Not of works, but of him who calls. It's the Lord who does it all. That no flesh should take any glory away from him. No flesh will glory in the presence of the Lord. All glory goes to the Lord. 100% of the glory goes to the Lord. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. That's Esau, who sold his birthright to Jacob. Remember, the, 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 the seed line, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. Verse 13, 
as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, we're going to get on some very touchy subjects now. When I say touchy subjects, remember what we studied in chapter 11. Okay, everything hinges on belief. Chapter 9 is chapter 7. It really starts in chapter 7, the beginning of this theme that continues through chapter 11. 7 through 11. But chapter 9, a lot of people reference chapter 9, and it's no problem at all to reference chapter 9. There's a lot of deep, deep, deep spiritual things in chapter 9. Deep, it's loaded. But without the understanding of chapter 10 and chapter 11, especially on everything hinging on belief, people start developing these crazy ideas. Just like verse 13. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with Calvinists. I've talked with Reformed theory people. And they say, well, you see, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's what God says. And it's true. What, what's written? I mean, it's written here. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I, hate, I have hated. But don't forget. Don't forget. It is also written in Hebrews 12, verse 16. That Esau was a godless fornicator. A godless fornicator. Remember, just like we mentioned in the Old Testament, in our study in the Old Testament, and a couple references in our studies in the New Testament, that God is reactionary. Reactionary. You know, there's blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Both Old Testament and New Testament. You say, wait a second, we're of a new covenant, we're of a new covenant. Well, okay, are you, are you carrying your cross? Are you dead? Oh, I believe, I believe, okay. Even the demons believe. It's good to believe, I'm not saying that it's bad to believe. But even the demons believe. And sometimes the demons fear Jesus Christ, fear God, more than Christians. Something wrong with that. That's why these things written in the Old Testament, when we started our study in the book of Numbers, we looked at certain passages in 1 Corinthians. And these things were written for our admonition, our warning, because it helps us in our fear of the Lord. What not to do. Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Because I see what you've done, how you responded. A lot of our studies, when we go through the Old Testament, it's very reactionary. God is reactionary. But there's opportunity given for people to humbly come before the Lord. I can't tell you. I've had long conversations with Calvinistic, Reformed theory, pastors, elders. Long conversations. And they don't know their Bibles. They can cite other books. They can cite other teachings. They can cite the Council of Dort. They can cite... Catechisms, certain lines of catechisms because they committed them to memory ever since they were kids. But what about citing the Old Testament? Oh, but Jacob I have loved. It is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay. Why did he hate Esau? Why is it that God hated Esau? Did he just hate Esau, period? Or was it not reactionary? Because Esau hated God. What? 
What do you mean Esau hated God? Look at his behavior. Look at his behavior. He was a godless fornicator. Why, why is Esau godless? You see? Oh, but he's of the seed of Abraham. Is he of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Remember, he sold, he sold his birthright. Let's continue. In verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Question mark. Certainly not. Exclamation point. A lot of teachers, famous teachers, they say God created sin. God created sin. But you know what? You read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and you see a different picture. That man is held accountable for his or her own choices. Mankind. Male, female, it doesn't matter. We are held accountable for our own choices. Old Testament and New Testament. You say, wait a second, I thought you said there was just one covenant. Now, there is one covenant. You know, you make this distinction of, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament or the law and the, the law of faith. There are, you know, the New Covenant, it's not the law. But I like to think of it like Seattle and Los Angeles. You know, you look at Seattle and Los Angeles. Say Seattle is the law and Los Angeles is, you know, grace. It's like, what camp are you in? Which location are you in? But there's just, there's one road that connects the two. It's the I-5. Interstate freeway, number five. I-5 freeway. What road are you on? I mean, which, which city are you in? So when I say there's one covenant, is to say, wait a second, like, you know, where in, in, in locale, Seattle or Los Angeles? The connector being the I-5 freeway. Rather than get into this ideology of, you know, progressive dispensationalism, uh, uh, covenant premillennialism, uh, replacement theology, all these different ideas. Oh, wait a second, there's three covenants now. No, one covenant, two families becoming one. You know, the church grafted in to Christ by faith in Him. Just like Asenath. You know, Asenath had the, she was grafted into the family of Zafnath Penea, the Egyptian name of Joseph and his Gentile wife and the Gentile kids were blessed first. You see? The Old Testament even testifies of these things. These concepts, these ideas. Why? Because they're a shadow of the things to come. So there, you know, I say one covenant, you know, in that, in the perspective of the I-5 freeway, but, you know, Seattle would be like the law and Los Angeles would be grace. Where are you? So, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm in Los Angeles. It's okay. Well, what's up with the crack pipe? What's up with the strip clubs? I don't see death, brother. I don't see death, brother. It looks to me like you're under the law. It looks to me like you might be in Seattle. You think you're in Los Angeles, but you're in Seattle. 
You see? The law is not a good place to be. Now the law can be used because you can be in Los Angeles, be under grace. You know, regardless of what you're what you think about those two cities, you know, I'm not a fan of those two cities. I don't I don't like liberal ideologies. You know, I love liberals, you know, because I want them to become Christians, but I don't like the liberal ide- ideologies. I don't align with those. So regardless of what you think about these two cities, I'm just, you know, painting a picture here. You can be in Los Angeles under grace, so to speak, and be like, whoa, I am so fearful of Seattle. I don't want to go to Seattle. I don't want to step foot in Seattle because that's the law. And you're using uh, the, the, the law as a, a tool to help you in your walk in Los Angeles. That's the two covenants. The old covenant, the new covenant. But when I say the old covenant, remember Jesus Christ says, I didn't come away, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. The only way you can get to Los Angeles is in Christ. That's the only way. No other way. Even though people try to fake it, can't fake it with the Lord. Robbers attempt to come in, but the Lord will kick them out. On the outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I don't say this as an elitist. I say that with the utmost compassion to say, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Repent and re- receive Jesus. Just as Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. That's remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No catechism. Not with me. No catechism. I don't like the catechism. I hate the catechism. I think it's entirely unbiblical. Oh, but we use Bible verses. We use Bible verses. Okay, that's fine. But why are you talking about the seed of Abraham? Why is the seed of Abraham mentioned in the catechism? Supposedly you're kicking off somebody's belief in Jesus by something that is entirely unbiblical? Heirs of Abraham, that's biblical. Seed of Abraham? No way. And that's the base plate from which you want to set your kids in their direction? No way. Not with me. I mean, one thing I have to say, you might be a listener. The majority of listeners, I have no idea who you are. No idea whatsoever. I only know a little tiny fraction of listeners. But I have to say this. You might be hearing these words and like furious. Like, I hate this guy. And you know what? Hate me. And I don't say that in like in a challenging way, like, you know, hey, put up your dukes. No, I say hate me. I welcome your hate. Why? Because I would much rather you hate me than hate Jesus Christ. Okay? You take all your hate and you pin it on me. And Jesus Christ loves you. And God loves you. And keep reading your Bible. And I'm going to keep praying for you. These are very, very deep things because a lot of people base their entire theology on things that we're going to talk about today, things that we're going to study today, which is why I have to place heavy, heavy, heavy emphasis on chapter 11, what we read in chapter 11, how everything hinges on belief. In chapter 11, verse 20, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And then in verse 23, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. You see? 
everything hinges on belief. And, and, you know, I threw in obedience because in verse 22, it says, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, if you remain and abide in his goodness. How does that happen? Through obedience. So in chapter 9 here, what shall we say then in verse 14? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. In verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Yes, biblically true. The Lord says it. Old Testament is referenced here in the New Testament. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. But I'll say this. That God's mercy is conditional. Don't forget Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. To those who love me and keep my commandments. You see? To those who abide in Christ. And Christ in them. I can't tell you how many pastors, how many elders, so many of the quote-unquote learned class Oh, Jacob, I love Esau, I've hated. It is also written, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, he was a godless fornicator. God's reaction to Esau's choice. Oh, uh, God has mercy on whomever he has mercy and compassion on whomever he has compassion. Yes, but it's conditional. It's reactionary. Exodus 20, verse 6. To those who love me and keep my commandments. That's who the Lord shows mercy to. Reactionary. The condition of God's mercy. It's not just, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, period. That's where you get into dangerous theologies such as Calvinism. You read the writings of John Calvin and what he said about the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and how he agrees with Augustine. And the Roman, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. These are things that the Roman Catholic Church today are using in their ecumenical movement. Don't forget, in the last days, there's going to be a one world religion. And all these things about this ecumenical movement... Read the catechisms. What they say about the seed of Abraham. That salvation comes through Abraham. Read the catechism. That is unbiblical. Salvation comes through Abraham. If salvation can come through Abraham, then you know what? Jesus Christ died in vain. That's if the catechism were true. But let God be true and every man a liar. Which means what? The catechism is a liar. Jesus Christ didn't die in vain. It is the power of God. The gospels of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. This last day's mess that we're in, this last day's fog that we're in, this last day's murky waters that we're in, we were told these days would come. Perilous times. 
everything building up to lawlessness, lawlessness abounding, the, 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 the lawless one coming, precursory to all that, is this ecumenical movement. One world religion. And you know what? Christians are taking the bait. Why? Oh, in the name of peace. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had peace? Wouldn't it be nice if we could all just get along? I don't like these wars anymore. So yes, salvation through Abraham. That's denial of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying I'm a warmonger. I want peace too. But peace can never come, never come, outside of the Prince of Peace who came to divide. Why? Because the wheat and the tares have to grow together until the harvest. And the harvest is plentiful. But you know who's few? The workers. Those who are indebted. Remember, work is a debt. That's from our study from Romans 1. It's very important to understand these things. If you're a Calvinist, if you're into Reformed theory, I want you to know that I love you and I pray for you. And I want you to hear these things. And if you decide, like, hey, you know, I hate this guy. I'm never going to listen to him again. That's fine. Hate me. I want you to hate me. Take all your hate and place it upon me. Not upon Jesus Christ. But his word is his word. And the word became flesh. Yes, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Yes, that is a biblical truth, but it is reactionary. Why? Because Esau made his choice. What was his choice? He was a godless fornicator. He also sold his birthright. He was a godless fornicator. So God reacted. God responded. In verse 15, I will have mercy on whomever, whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I, I will have compassion. And then you read Exodus 20, verse 6, you'll understand it's reactionary. He shows mercy to those who love me and keeps my commandments. That was, that's what he says. Those are his words. And, you know, it, just, it blows me away so much because, you know, we start to read and understand these things. And, and it's like, wait a second. So does that mean that all these things that I was taught as a kid, all these things I was taught in seminary, which I call cemetery, does that mean they're wrong? Well, if it's against the Bible, yes, it is wrong. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, but this guy has a doctorate in theology. This guy has his, his study Bibles. Are we talking about the same guy who says it's okay to take the mark of the beast? That guy? You can take the mark of the beast and still be saved? Are, are, is that the same guy we're referring to? Never take the mark of the beast. Never, ever, ever take the mark of the beast. Even if it costs you your life. The last days are going to get darker and darker and darker and more treacherous, more treacherous, more perilous, more perilous, more perilous. And I'm seeing Christians being sucked into this one world religion. Why? In the name of peace. In the name of prosperity. Don't forget. 
The whore of Babylon. The whore of Babylon. And, you know, hearken to our studies in Revelation. The whore of Babylon is the mother of harlots. What does that tell us? She has children. She has offspring. Who are the offspring of this mother of harlots? Who are the offspring of this mother of harlots who is, that has no truth in her? Nothing. No truth whatsoever. People are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And who are these so-called churches, faith organization, organizations that are aligning with this mother of harlots? The prophesied mother of harlots. You see? Call me crazy. Call me crazy. Sometimes I wonder, maybe I am. <laughs> So look what happens here in, um, in verse 16. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. You see, God gets all the glory that no flesh should glory in his presence. In verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. I have raised you. It says for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. You see, so people say, you see, look what God did to Pharaoh. Look what God did to Pharaoh. God hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Entirely true. God did harden his heart. But don't forget, how many times was it that Pharaoh hardened his heart? Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. It was a form of judgment. And what's written here in verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, let me tell you how this translates in the Greek. For this very purpose, I have raised you up. For this very purpose, translates in the Greek as for this same, same purpose. Or in the Hebrew, when you read the, uh, the reference in, in the Old Testament, it's also the exact same word. I mean, not in the Greek, but in the Hebrew, the translation, same. For this same purpose. You see, it's like this situation one dictates situation number two, and it's based on proximity. I'll give you an example. Say like you're going to go see your neighbor. Your neighbor's like, you know, uh, five houses down. And in front of your neighbor's house is the mailbox. Okay, so you're going to go see your neighbor say, hey, how you doing? You know, do you have, uh, you know, can I have my sugar back? Or I don't know, whatever you lend, lend him. Can I have my sugar back? So he gives you the sugar, but then, you know, you say, oh, you know, the mailbox is right here. I'm going to bring my mail also. So since I'm here, since I'm at this proximity of my neighbor, I'm also going to drop off my mail in the mailbox. Or, you know, you're going to go get some coffee. So you're going to go get some coffee at a good coffee joint, you know, and right there, right in that proximity, there's a mailbox. So I'm also going to drop off my mail there. So you see, situation one is dictated by situation number two based on proximity. 
And that's what we see in this account of what we had. For this very purpose I have raised you up. Or for this same purpose I have raised you up. That I may show my that I may show my power in you. You see? So wait a second. So you read this and you're like, what hope did Pharaoh have? If what's written here for this very purpose, which translates as for the same purpose I have raised you up, what hope did Pharaoh have? You know, a lot of times people say, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. And I'm not mocking his sovereignty. The Lord surely is sovereign. Surely, surely is sovereign. But he's the one who teaches us his counsel. He, he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I never change, saith the Lord. Remember, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, but his mercy is conditional to those who love me and keep my commandments. So understanding that mercy is conditional, don't forget that mercy was shown to Pharaoh. Compassion was shown to Pharaoh. You say, wait a second, now you're going a little too far. What do you mean mercy was shown to Pharaoh? Well, let's go to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. And in Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. And he hardened his heart, he and his servants. Like, wow. What in the world? Like, he and the, everybody's heart is being hardened. By themselves. By themselves. Now, don't forget, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then all of a sudden, God hardened his heart. It's a form of judgment. But look who's included in this. He sin, in verse 34 of chapter 9, he sinned yet more and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. But look what happens now in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. Whoa. So now you see the Lord is telling Moses, You know what? I'm hardening his heart and the hearts of his servants hearts of his servants it's a form of judgment god's wrath on individuals is precursory to wrath in a land it's precursory just like we see we study in romans 1 how god's wrath comes upon individuals and as you see this form of wrath what we study in romans 1 as you see it grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow more and more in these last days, know that judgment is coming up on the land. It's one of the signs. So you say, wait a second. In chapter 9, verse 34, Pharaoh, he sinned yet more and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. But in chapter 10, verse 1, you know, the Lord is saying, I've hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. So look at chapter or look at verse 7 now. You see a little change. What is the change? Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, this is verse 7, Pharaoh's servants said to him, remember, remember their hearts were hard, you know, by themselves and then by the Lord. 
just as in verse uh, ch- chapter 9, verse 34, and chapter 10, verse 1. And this is what this Pharaoh's servants said to him now, in verse 7. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? You see, their hearts were soft again. Their hearts were soft. Let the men go. That's what happens with judgment. That's why we read passages in in Revelation. And I'll turn there really quick. In Revelation... Chapter 9, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. You see, no repentance. Did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So there's no repentance. And in this time period, what's happening during the 70th week of Daniel, it's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture at all. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of judgment, just as there was in Egypt. And just as Pharaoh's servants, their hearts became soft again, the same thing is going to happen during the 70th week. Because look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 13. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. You see? And this is going to sound so crazy, and you're going to think I'm crazy. But there is beauty. There is beauty in the 70th week, and it's this. People learning the fear of the Lord by the hand of the Lord. That's the beauty. People believing, people falling to their knees. You see, a people in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, they did not repent. They did not repent. And then here, all of a sudden, in chapter 11, verse 13, the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. It's not to say that I want judgment to come. I meant, I want the aftermath. I want that. But when judgment comes, there's little elements of beauty. And these elements of beauty are people acknowledging Jesus Christ, becoming Christians, believing in Jesus Christ, and falling to their knees and giving glory to the God of heaven. Let's go back to Exodus You say, what are you talking about that grace is shown to Pharaoh? Grace is shown to Pharaoh. I don't get it. I thought he hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. Yes. But in Exodus chapter 10, something else is taught to us. 
in Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. This is compassionate and mercy shown to Pharaoh. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? See? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That's a hardcore question. What's it going to take, Pharaoh? Yes, your heart is hard. And your servant's heart is hard. But look, in the course of time, these plagues are coming, these plagues are coming, these plagues are coming. And through these plagues, your servants, their hearts are being made soft. To where they're now heeding my word, let my people go. And they're telling you, Pharaoh, let my people go. Let the God of the Hebrews, let them go. Or let the people of the God of the Hebrews go. And the Lord asked him, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? You see, a little glimpse of God's compassion on Pharaoh. Let's go back to Romans 9. Romans 9. And I lost my place, so it's going to take me a while. In verse 17, the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose, or for this same purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. The Lord makes himself known. He makes himself known. Just like he did in Exodus, so he's going to do in the in the 70th week of Daniel. And hardcore in the last half of the 70th week of Daniel. The Lord will make himself known and people's hearts will be hard. People's hearts will be so hard. And as these plagues befall the earth, they'll get softer and softer. Not on everybody, but on some. But even if it's just one, praise be to the Lord. Therefore, in verse 18, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Just like we looked at Pharaoh and his servants. An opportunity was still given to them. An opportunity was still given to Pharaoh. How long will you refuse to humble yourself, Pharaoh? Don't forget that God is still long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Old Testament and New Testimony. Or Old Testament and New Testament. You know, when I think about the uh, 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 servants of Pharaoh, be of good cheer because you know what? There's people in your life, people you know, people you love. They might be servants of Pharaoh. They might be servants of Pharaoh. But be of good cheer and never stop praying for them, interceding for them, seeking the Lord for them. Because in the course of time, their hearts might be made soft, just as the servants of Pharaoh. You see? Just as the servants of Pharaoh. And I tell you the truth, the only way out, the only way out of a hard heart, the only way out, and I tell you from experience, is through humility. That's the only way out. Humility before God. 
Humility before the throne of grace. Humility at the feet of Jesus Christ. When that happens, when a soul chooses humility over pride, when that happens, it's Jesus Christ who picks you up. And praise be to the Lord. We've seen it, what we looked at, we looked, we've seen it in the servants of Pharaoh, whose hearts they made hard and whose hearts the Lord made hard. And now all of a sudden through these plagues, their hearts became soft again. We see it in Nebuchadnezzar, whose heart was hard and who was humbled by the Lord. And in his state of humility, he proclaimed the Lord once again. Nebuchadnezzar. It's the only way out of a hard heart is humility. That's why, you know, we look at Hebrews 3, what we read in Hebrews 3. Beware, Hebrews 3.12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Christians, this is for Christians. An evil heart of unbelief. You mean to tell me that, you know, a Christian can unbelieve? A person can believe and then unbelieve? Yes. People always say, oh, once saved, always saved, once saved, always saved. Really? You read Luke 8. People can believe for just a little while. Belief in Jesus Christ can be short term. It's not once saved, always saved. Oh, but you know, uh, nobody, uh, nobody can take a, 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 a sheep out of, uh, out of uh, the shepherd's hands. Biblical truth. But don't walk away. Apostatize. Don't be an apostate. Apostasy. Which is another sign of the last days. In accordance with this mother of harlots and her whorish daughters. This whorish mother and her whorish daughters is the prophesied falling away. Mother of harlots. Oh, can't we all just get along? Look, let's follow our catechism. Forget the cross of Jesus Christ. You believe in Abraham? Praise the Lord, you have salvation. No. It's a piece of cake to speak Christianese. There is no salvation outside of Christ. None. Hate me all you want, I'm just the messenger. There is zero salvation outside of Christ. If salvation can come through Abraham, then Christ died in vain. The Son of the Most High died in vain. If you're going to believe that, and you're going to stand before the Lord one day, and He's going to say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Why? Because you're basing everything on false theology, false doctrine. You need the door, capital D. Remember last week in our study, that big warehouse? You need to come to the door. And there are people in this big warehouse that are very special people. Fishermen and fisherwomen. 
What are they doing? Fishing. Taking you to the door. Showing you to the door. You see? Exhort one another daily while it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's how a heart can become hard. You see it. Have you ever seen Christians? Christians, people who believe in Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, you know, just like in our study in, in uh, chapter 8, you know, walking according to the flesh or walking according to the Spirit. They make all these choices, walking according to the flesh, according to the flesh, according to the flesh, according to the flesh. All of a sudden, their heart becomes harder and harder and harder. The deceitfulness of sin, and then it's a mess. Sometimes it happens to pastors, elders. Don't forget what we read in Acts 20. Shepherds. Elders can become wolves. You see? Elders can become wolves. Pastors can become wolves. You see it. You see it. Just read the newspapers. Read about pastors. Celebrity pastors. They're not a shepherd. A wolf, a wolf in the pulpit. Where were the co-pastors? Where were the elders? Where in the world were they? Somebody comes up, you know, a female comes up. Hey, co-pastor. Hey, elders. We got a problem. Something's happening here. Oh, you need to be gracious. Show grace. Show grace. Show mercy. Show the love of Christ. That is the love of Christ. Somebody coming up saying, hey, pastor, hey, elder, there's a problem here. There's a problem here. The sheep fears the Lord more than the shepherd. That's not a good picture. You see? And the horror of Babylon sings. The horror of Babylon sings loudly. And people are drunk on the wine of her fornication. The mother of harlots who has whorish daughters. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't believe it. We have the sword of truth right before us, the Holy Bible. Use it. Learn how to use it and then use it. And so look what happens here. In verse 18, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Remember, God's condition for mercy. In Exodus 20, verse 6, you know, God shows mercy to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's why Jesus Christ says, if you love me, obey my commandments. So, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I love him. I mean, love him. Okay, what's up with the crack? Why are you going to strip clubs? Why are you a tax chief? What's up with alcoholism? What's up with why you have these needles in your arms? Why are you paying people under the table? Every time you do all your little white lies, your heart is getting harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, but once saved, always saved. I said the catechism. (laughs) Really? And you believe the catechism? Yeah, I sure do. Oh, the Council of Dort, 1611. Really? What does the Bible have to say about that? The seed of Abraham? 
So are you saved from the seed of Abraham? Are you, does, are you saved in the name of Jokten? Jokshen? Ishmael? Ishbak? Shua? You see? You see how this doctrine gets off into crazy town? And I can go further. But I'll restrain myself a little bit. I can go deeper. But I'll refrain from doing so because these are some very heavy topics. And I know it's challenging a lot of you. But let God be true and every man a liar. In verse 19, remember, as we're studying these verses, chapter 11, verse 20, I'm going to say it again. You say, ah, you're just repeating yourself over again. It's for your protection, my friend. In chapter 11, verse 20, because of unbelief, they were broken off. That's unbelief broken off. In verse 23, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. You see? So what does he say to the Christian? In verse 20, do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. And also remember verse 18, that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Replacement theology, garbage, garbage. Supersessionism, garbage, unbiblical. I don't care what coalition teaches such thing. I do not care what famous, famous coalition teaches and espouses such things. Garbage. Let's go back to chapter 9. Verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Who has opposed his will? This is a pretty interesting question because it's like, wait a second. If they're doing his will, why does God blame them? Why, why, why does the Lord even find fault if they're just, if they're just doing His will? And this is a question that many pose today. And this is where the full counsel of the Word of God comes into play. Because look at what we've studied so far in Exodus, Leviticus, and now Numbers. Look at all the things we've studied so far. Do you see how God is reactionary? How God shows mercy. Remember Moses? He killed a guy. And the Lord didn't hold him against he didn't hold it against him. Why? Because the law against killing hadn't been given yet. Well, the law against murder, I shouldn't say killing, but the law against murder has had not been given yet. I'm not making an excuse for killing, but there's a in the Hebrew there's a major distinction there. Because Israel's gonna go to war. And but murder is something different. Like uh, um, it's like um, how do I explain this? Like um, like a, like like modern day convictions. You have a murder conviction, as or like if you have a, a home, like in like you have a protection, like a uh, somebody breaks in your home. And, you know, they're punching you in the face. They're doing all these things. They're stabbing you. you got a couple stabs already. 
and then you take a gun, you shoot him. You know, that's not considered murder. I mean, you killed the guy, but it's not considered murder. I'm not advocating killing, but there's a distinction in the Hebrew. Murder is to go out like premeditated. Oh, you know, I hate this guy. I'm going to go kill him. That's premeditated. So there's a distinction in the Hebrew and also in the Greek, but I'm not making <laughs> Don't read into that as I'm making an excuse for killing, because I'm not. But when Moses killed an Egyptian, the Lord didn't hold it against him because the law hadn't been given yet. But what about when Moses didn't circumcise his sons? God wanted to kill him because the law of circumcision had been given. You see, so that's why, you know, we see these little passages where you see God is reactionary. Reactionary based on, you know, he just lays out the groundwork and says, okay, this is what you do and this is what you don't do. People do it, okay, you're good to go. Blessings. You don't do this, hey, cut it out. You know, little spankings because he chastises those whom he loves. Another spanking, 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 spanking. But then the golden calf, that's when Moses straight up says, hey, if you're with God, you stand here with me. And they're like laying it out. If you want to be with God, if you're with the Lord, you come stand here with me. There's, you know, these, you know, you read passages like this in the Old Testament and it scares me. And I hope it scares you too. Not because I want you to be like, you know, scared. But I do want you to have a healthy fear of the Lord. That's what I desire for you. Love of the Lord, certainly. But the fear of the Lord as well. And in accordance with truth, sound doctrine. So let's continue here. In verse 20, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply, to reply against God? You know, and I love this so much because it's kind of taken out of context today because everybody says God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. Who are you to, to reply against God? You don't know His ways. Who are you to say anything against God? You can't say anything against God. That's, the, that's an argument for the unlearned. And I'm not accusatory against Paul. But that's a heavy argument that the unlearned use. Because don't forget, in Isaiah 1, it's the Lord who says, Come and let us reason together. This grand invitation. Beautiful, beautiful invitation. Come and let us reason together. And a lot of people use this excuse. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. You don't know His ways. You can't fathom His ways. His ways are not your ways. They use These are biblically true. His ways are not our ways. But they use it as an excuse, like, you know, wait a second, you know, why are you on crack? You know, you, you said the catechism, you know, you lean on one saved, always saved. What's up with the crack pipe? What's up with these little white lies? Why are you a tax cheat? Why are you going to strip clubs? Why are you watching pornography on your computer? You tell me God is sovereign, act like it. Behave like it, oh man. You're the one who's telling me God is sovereign. So live like it. Do you not fear the Lord? You see? These are... You're going to lean on the catechism? You're going to lean on the council of Dort? You're, you're going to lean on the uh, Heldeberg catechism? Which is biblically wrong? The catechism of the uh, Protestant church, which is 
biblically wrong? The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which is biblically wrong? In this day and age where there is this apostasy, an apostasy which is growing, all gearing up for this mother of harlots and her whorish daughters. I don't want to be a part of that. This mother of harlots with her whorish daughters, I don't want to be a part of that. And the people that the Lord allows me to teach and shepherd, I don't want them to be a part of it. I don't want you to be a part of it. You see, we, we lean on the Word of God, the full counsel of the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. You see how loaded chapter 9 is? The things where if you just read chapter 9 alone, you're like, oh, wait a second. Yeah, you know, I kind of lean on Calvinistic teaching. I'm kind of lean on Reformed theory, you know, theory, theories. But chapter 9 alone, remember the, the council is like chapter 7 through chapter 11. That's why we did these hardcore references to chapter 11. It's for your safety because it all hinges on belief. You believe, graft it in. You don't believe, graft it out. You believe, you're grafted out and you believe again, graft it in. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, an Old Testament example through Nebuchadnezzar, who was a servant of the Lord. A servant of the Lord. A tool of chastisement against Judah. Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. You see? And in his pride, you know, the Lord became forgotten. And then all of a sudden he was humbled. And in his state of humility, he saw the Lord grafted in once again. An Old Testament example of this new covenant truth. Believe, grafted in. Unbelief, grafted out. Believe again, grafted in. It's not to say that we take advantage of God's grace. But we bask in it because God's grace is beautiful. And so look what happens here. In verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel of, for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, now this translates in the Greek as de'ei, which is like more like a weather, you know, like weather God. But, you know, I have to say something. We're going to touch on some passages here, but I want to touch on Romans 11 verse 4 really quick. Romans 11 verse 4. The end of verse 4, he says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that's what we're going to, you know, we're not going to study it, but here's the, the uh, reference of Elijah. When Elijah thought he was the only man standing for the Lord, and the Lord comforted him. Elijah, I know you feel alone, but you're not alone. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. No idolatry in these people. They honor me. No idolatry. That's the danger of idolatry. 
Even more so in the last days. You know why? Because of this prophecy of apostasy. The church becoming apostate. The last day's church is either false. The last day's church is either false, apostate, or it's being refined. That's 30% ratio. 33 and a third. That's the ratio. And in the church that's being refined, it gets refi- it's, it gets even chopped up a little further. Because in the church that's refined is where you have wise virgins. You also have foolish virgins. All are virgins. All have lamps. All have oil. All are awaiting the bridegroom. Except the foolish virgins, they don't have oil for their lamp. And they run out. And they go out and get some more. They come back and it's too late. They're on the outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see? That's a very slim ratio. And I don't mean to scare you. Because there's such great comfort in abiding in Christ, in, you know, abiding in Christ and He in us. And there's safety. Remember in Egypt, as all these plagues are befalling Egypt, where is their light? Light is with God's people in Goshen. Where is Goshen in the church today? Where is Goshen when people are proclaiming that salvation can come through Abraham and not in Christ? In the catechism itself. Where is Goshen where you have pastors who are wolves? Shepherds who've turned into wolves. A lot of sex, a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol. And this guy's going to teach at the pulpit? Where is Goshen? You think Goshen's going to be there? No way. No way. Remember. The last day's church is either false, apostate. Apostate meaning they think they're doing good, but they're really wrong doctrinally. It's a defection away from truth. That's what it is. Apostasy. A defection away from truth. All moving under the covering of the mother of harlots. It's the last days. So look what happens here in verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And this word here, prepared for destruction, is to be joined together, uh, joined together with destruction. The word is katartiso uh, uh, in the Greek. And turn with me really quick to 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now this is, you might think a little off topic, but I'll explain. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So this word, to be perfectly joined together, you know what that is? Katartiso. Adjoining together. This right here, what Paul is referring to, is to be perfectly joined together in the same mind, which is the mind of Christ. This is a good, 
a good form of katartiso in the Greek, joining together. Now this word katartiso, what we see here in verse 22, prepared for, translates as joins together with destruction. You know what that tells me? Don't be joined together with destruction. You know what I teach you? Don't be joined together with destruction. What does that look like? Well, do you remember when we opened up in our study in Romans 1? Uh, Romans 1? And we see all these things in Romans 1 verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the, for the, of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty for their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. So here we have a little list. And I got to tell you, I get mad at Christians sometimes. Not mad in a bad way, but mad like, well, you know, what are you thinking? Why are you doing this? Because I say, you know, God hates homosexuals. God hates lesbians. God hates, you know, it's like, yes, those behaviors are not good. God hates those behaviors, certainly, as is written. But there's more. Oh, God hates gays. God hates lesbians. He, he hates sexual sin. You're going to say God hates gay people and you're going to go hang out in the strip clubs? You're going to do your pornography? You see, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. You got a big old two by four in your face. You got to take that plank out of your eye. You see, in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. You see, that's this joining together with destruction. And don't be that way. Don't be that way, beloved Christian. My beloved brother, my beloved sister, don't be that way. Don't be joined together with the things of this world because this world is at enmity with God. Friendliness with the world is enmity with God. That's why you hear me say, be careful with your roots. Don't let your roots go deep into the soil, but let your roots stretch, you know, into the heavenly realm because we're just passing through. We're just passing through. That's it. Now you hear my little comments I said about homosexuality, lesbianism. If you're listening to this message and you're homosexual, you're a gay or you're a lesbian, I want you to know that God loves you. He loves you. And you know what? You must repent. You must repent and walk away from that lifestyle, the sexual sin. The same way I had to make a choice and walk away from sexual sin. I had to make a choice the same way you have to make a choice. You can choose one way or the other, but I'm telling you to choose Jesus Christ because He loves you. 
And heterosexual sin too. Cut it out. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. If it's your computer, if it's your phone, if it's what you whatever, those are things that are causing you to sin, get rid of them. It's not worth it. Oh, but I spent $5,000 on this cool computer. That's nice. Your soul is worth $5,000. That's pretty cheap. See? Let's go back to Romans 9. And so remember, God is long-suffering. You know, if you look at Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel 33, turn with me really quick to Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, exclamation point. For why should you die, O house of Israel? You see, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. When you hear me say that God is reactionary, it breaks his heart. Remember, he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. It breaks his heart. I'll give you an example. This might be a poor example, but I'll give you an example. And I'll speak as a fool and speak as a man. But there was a time in our little fellowship, we had some major, major sexual sin, major sexual sin in our fellowship. And I found out about it. I didn't know about it. I found out about it. When I found out about it, I had to address it immediately. I had to. And when I did, it's, it's a weird feeling. It's, it's like you're compelled. You're compelled to address the sin. You're like, you have no control. You have to, because for example, with this sexual sin, If a pastor just says, okay, no big deal, you know, God is love, go ahead, keep having sex, go ahead, keep doing this, keep doing this sexual sin, no big deal. That pastor is not complicit in the sin. Do you remember when Joshua, you know, they started, they were winning battles and then they started losing battles? And then Joshua goes before the Lord, he falls down and he starts to pray. And he's like, Lord, we're losing all these battles. And the Lord's like, Joshua, why are you even praying to me? There's sin in the camp, Joshua. Now, pastors pray for their fellowships. Pray, intercede. There's a lot of things that are unseen in the, you know, for the pastors. There's a lot of things that are unseen, good and bad. You know, the bad is when you see uh, pastors who are wolves. I don't call them pastors. But the pastors who are shepherds, there's a lot of unseen things. And a lot, when I say unseen, It's not like, you know, secretive stuff. It's just a pastor on his face before the Lord. But what about when there's sin in the camp? A pastor who, you know, doesn't say anything. You know, there's the saying how uh, 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 silence, when you're silent, you're complicit. You're complicit. 
You're joining in. You're accepting. You're approving. And so this people, these people left. You know, sexual sin, they left. They go to another fellowship, whatever. They take more people with them. And, you know, all kinds of more sin just came upon. It's like it's all this mess. Mess. But you're forced. You can't be disobedient. You can't be disobedient. I mean, you know, you're... You have to be obedient to the Lord. You make a choice. You have to be obedient to the Lord. It's a. It's not weird. It's. I shouldn't say weird. It's holy. It's holy. And remember, I speak as a fool. I speak as a man. It's holy. It, it, that's why when I read these passages, like the Lord, when He does these things, when He's reactionary, I'll ask you a question. What do you expect him to do? What do you expect the Lord to do? You know, a person's you know on his crack. A person's doing his meth, got the meth mouth and everything. Doing his sexual thing, doing his you know pornography, beating on his wife, cheating on his wife, cheating on his wife. The occult, you know, Ouija boards and that. Let the kids play with their Ouija boards. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Well, where is the fear of the Lord? Even demons believe in Jesus. And they fear the Lord more than you. I mean, you know, for this example. You see, what do you expect the Lord to do? I mean, sometimes we're going to study it, but you're going to see people in the church, they rail against Paul. They say negative things against Paul. But if you were to align yourself with Paul, what do you expect him to do? What do you expect him to say? When Chloe told Paul about these things that were happening in the church in Corinth, sexual sin, what do you expect Paul to say? Do you expect Paul to not say anything and be complicit in the sin? Condoning of the sin? Do you expect Paul to say, oh, okay, no big deal, it's fine. No, Paul wrote a letter back. He says, you know what? Take that guy and get him out of the church because a little leaven leavens the bunch. In a shepherd role, you feed the sheep, you feed the lambs, but then you also have to protect them. What do you expect Paul to do? Oh, it's okay. Go ahead. Keep having sex with your dad's wife. No big deal. God is love. Do you expect Paul to say that? No way. You expect Peter to say that? Jude? James? John? No way. Even they are reactionary. Their hand is forced. Their words are forced. They're reactionary. So we read these passages. And remember, you know, with the focal point of uh, uh, Romans 11, Romans 11, everything hinges on belief, belief, and belief, it's, it's kind of part and parcel with obedience, 
Because Jesus Christ is the one who says, you know, if you love me, obey my commandments. You see? Despite what people say. People say you're crazy. People say you're stupid. People say you're legalist. People say you're mean. People say you're crazy. Who cares? Let God be true and every man a liar. You can rejoice because you're counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. Rejoice. You see? People make their choice. But where are the walls? Where are the walls? Where are the bulwarks? Where are the ones who will say, no, this isn't going to happen? Where are the pastors? And when the pastors fall, where are the elders? And when the elders fall, where are the deacons? When the deacons fall, okay. You know? Anybody in the fellowship. Where are the warriors? Will the warriors please stand? That's what I want to know. Why is it you see all this mess happening in the church? Remember, judgment comes first in the house of God. And I don't say this like accusatory against the church, like, oh, the church is a mess, the church is a mess. Yeah, the church is a mess. But I'm not called to speak to the dead. I'm called to speak to the living. I can go fishing, but I speak to the living. We have to be wise to the times. Understand that this mother of harlots has whorish daughters. And these whorish daughters have teachings that are not biblical. They are entirely unbiblical. They are entirely satanic and demonic according to the workings of lawlessness and all leading up to the son of perdition being revealed. Everything is building to this climax, this apex the events in the 70th week of Daniel, namely the last three and a half years. Prophetically speaking. It's going to happen. It will come to pass. As surely as the Lord lives, it will come to pass. And we see the workings of it already in effect. The apostasy comes first. Let's go back to Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Remember our study in chapter 8? Have regard for your destiny. Have regard for your predetermined destiny. We studied that in chapter 8. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea. Very interesting, the beautiful, beautiful ministry of Hosea, a prophet of Israel. An Israel that refused to repent. He says, as he says also in Hosea, but if you hearken to our study through Hosea, Hosea 14.1 these are, I'm going to read passages from the entirety of Hosea. Hosea 14.1, return to the Lord. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. 13.6, this is Hosea. They forgot me. Hosea 11.7, they backslide from me. None at all exalt him. Hosea 11 verse 5, they refuse to repent. 
Hosea 10 verse 13, you, uh, uh, you, uh, uh, you trusted in your own way. Hosea 10 verse 3, they did not fear the Lord. Hosea 9 verse 17, they did not obey him. Hosea 9 verse 15, their deeds were evil. Verse 8, uh, chapter 8 verse 14, Hosea, they forgot their maker. Chapter 8 verse 1, they transgressed and rebelled. Chapter 7 verse 14 of Hosea, they did not cry out to me. Chapter 7 verse 10, they do not return to the Lord nor, nor seek him. Uh, Hosea 7 verse 7, none among them calls upon me. Hosea 6 verse 10, Israel is defiled. Hosea 4 verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, this beautiful prophet Hosea saying these things to Israel. What is it that you expect the Lord to do? And remember, we are the clay. I am the clay. You are the clay. And I don't want to make it seem like his hand is forced. But sometimes it sure does seem that way by our own choices. I hated my hard heart 20-some years ago. I hated it. And my heart became harder and harder and harder. And I tell you from experience that I myself was a servant of Pharaoh. And I hardened my heart and the Lord hardened my heart. And I say this with the utmost shame. I hated God. I tore up his Bible. I hated him. And you know what? He brought me to a place of humility. And it was there that I stopped to fight him. I stopped fighting him. You know where that place was? Jail. <laughs> beautiful, 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 blessed jail. Concrete, big steel bars. And the Lord spoke to my heart. You want to be king of your heart? Behold your kingdom. And I wept. You see? I was like Nebuchadnezzar. Prideful, 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 evil. The only way out of a hard heart is through humility. I tell you from experience. That is the only way out. The meek shall inherit the earth. So we look at these passages in chapter 9. And I'm going to read chapter 11 again. Say, oh, come on, I don't want to read that again. I have to read it again. It's for your safety. Romans 
11 verse 19. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty but fear. Verse 23, and they also if they do not continue in unbelief will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. You see, everything hinges on belief. Verse 18, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Let's go back to chapter 9 in closing. He says, as he, in verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, the beautiful, beautiful prophet Hosea. Don't forget, Hosea 2, what we're going to look at in these passages in verse 25, Hosea 2 is the prophecy of a future people, a people who will. Call me, saith the Lord, my husband. Remember we studied that in chapter 7? In chapter 7, verse 4, that you may be married to another, to him. You see, it's Jesus Christ. People don't think of a relationship with Jesus Christ as marriage. Some do. Few do. Most people think of a walk with Jesus as religion. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead and do my crack, and yeah, I'll go to church. Yeah, I'll go to the strip club. Yeah, I'll do my pornography. I'll do my little, I'll be a tax cheat. I'll say my little white lies, no big deal. Look, I get an extra $2,000 on my taxes. Oh, God is good. Once saved, always saved, you see? I said the catechism. Yeah, good to go. Really? Pretty cavalier. Pretty cavalier attitude. And I don't say that to hurt you. But I say it to sharpen you. You know, the last days are no joke. It's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. You know who can, who will stand? I mean, it's going to get, even unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Even the elect. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh, zero flesh would be saved. That's how dark it's going to get. But praise be to the Lord, because those days will be shortened. There are wise virgins. Just like Elijah. Just like the 7,000 who didn't bow the knee to Baal. You see? And so look what happens here. In verse 25, as he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. So you hear me mention, you know, between you know, in the entirety of Judah, it's better to be like Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah was symbolic of the remnant in comparison with Judah. As is written here in verse 27, the remnant will be saved. But that's the remnant of Israel. Look at chapter 11, verse 5. Chapter 11, verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. You know who this remnant is? Wise virgins. The five wise virgins. That's the remnant according to the election of grace. 
In what camp are you? That's a hardcore question. In what camp are you? Narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life and wide is the way that leads to hell. You see? Where will the warriors please stand? And I don't mean, you know, carnally speaking, but the fighters. The fighters, when this whore of Babylon and her whorish daughters start to teach, and they already have started teaching, start to proclaim these false doctrines, pulling away from the cross of Jesus Christ. Salvation through Abraham? Mm-mm. It's unbiblical. Oh, but peace, you know, let's just get along. Can't we all just get along? Look, I'm a Christian too. Look, I'm a Christian too. Look at, you know, I'm doing the sun salutation. I'm a Christian too. Look, I'm praying to Mary. Look, I'm a Christian too. We have uh, pole dancing at our ladies' fellowships. What? What in the world is happening? In verse 28, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, this is the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, had left us a seed. Remember the seed? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And further on, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. You know, it's crazy. You have all these connotations, these worldly connotations to these biblical truths. So when you have a young generation, they hear these names, they hear these things. And you know, Hollywood, they create all these things. Or it's like you say, and it's like, you know, that's from the Bible. Like, look at the rainbow. The rainbow is such a beautiful, beautiful promise, that the, a sign of a promise of the Lord. And look at what it's been turned into by man under the in demonic influence. But no, the rainbow is still beautiful. It's still beautiful. I don't care what mankind has done with it. I look at the rainbow and I weep because I remember God's promise to mankind. You see, look what happens here in verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained or have eagerly, uh, uh, taken eagerly to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained or has not arrived to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the, that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You see, all these things are prophetic. Does that mean God is done with Israel? No way. No way, in any way, shape, or form, God is not done with Israel. But that the scriptures might be fulfilled, their eyes will be opened, 
read the prophecies in Zechariah. We're going to study that more in, you know, chapter 10 and chapter 11. But I can't stress it enough. Anytime you hear somebody reference Romans 9, anytime, you have to buttress it with Romans 11, with Hebrews 13, with Exodus 9, with Acts 2, with Ezekiel 33, and that's when you have the full counsel of the Word of God. Yes, it is biblically true how the Lord says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. But that's reactionary because Esau made his choice. He was a godless fornicator. Yes, it is true that the Lord says, I will have mercy on whom, whom, whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever, whomever I will have compassion. But that's conditional. There's a condition to God's mercy. To those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20 verse 6. Chapter 9 has arguably... From a doctrinal standpoint, the most it is also written points to verses. Because if you look at chapter 9 and chapter 9 alone, you can get lost. And not to suggest that a person can get lost in scripture, like from a doctrinal standpoint. Not to suggest that in any way, shape or form. But the entirety of scripture has to be read Text, context, and co-text. That's where there's safety in the Holy Word of God. I don't care about the Council of Dort. I don't care about the catechism of whatever organization. I don't care about the New York Times greatest bestseller. I don't care about these famous coalitions who put together these, you know, children's material saying that uh, children, it's important for the catechizing of kids. I could care less what what they have to say. I care about the Bible, what the Bible teaches. The truth of God's holy word. Because we're in the last days. We're a last days generation. And you see everybody's going off in the crazy town. Even that alone is prophetic. Because the mother of harlots has her whorish daughters. And I don't want anybody to be under the umbrella of these whorish daughters. You know, under the umbrella of the whorish mother, the mother of harlots, people getting drunk of the wine of her fornication. You see, so we read these passages. Some people, they hate the name of Jesus Christ. Others, the name of Jesus is like honey to their lips. And the scriptures will be fulfilled. All of the scriptures will be fulfilled. Belief in Jesus and once you believe in Jesus, you walk with Jesus, and you walk with Jesus, and then what happens? You're crucified with Jesus. And then what happens? You're alive with Jesus. You see? And when they chop off our heads or whatever, you know, however we die, we're in paradise with Jesus. You take your last breath here on earth, your first breath in eternity with the Lord. Praise be to his name. We're going to end our study here. God bless you. Love you guys.